can you give away any secrets of, of your theory of, of scaring people? The psycho shower scene made many women afraid to take a shower in a house where they were alone for years, some to this day. Well, I had um, a letter from a man who said that uh, my daughter, after she saw the French film Diabolique, would never take a tub anymore because they had a scene with a man coming out of a tub and taking his eyes out. Some horror scene. Yeah. He said, and after seeing that, she'd never take a tub. Now, having seen Psycho, she won't take a shower. <laughs> As a result, she's very unpleasant to be around. <laughs> so I replied, I said, dear sir, <laughs> send her to the dry cleaners. <laughs> Lucky you! Best 36 holes in golf. You tuned in to Alternate Shots Podcast. Arnie's Army. Where we talk about golf. Barkies, Sandys. Poker. Bond. James Bond. Horse racing. I'm all in. Great movies. Alfred Hitchcock. We have no script. And down the stretch they come. We're glad you joined us. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's start again. What sort of a childhood did you have? Were you interested in movies way back? Not really. Not interested in them now, actually. It's a way of making a living. It was about 1916. I was at college going, taking a course in mechanical engineering back at Cornell University in New York. And this, I took a job at the studio to earn, earn money during summer vacation. And it just happened that Doug Fairbanks was making a picture in the East, and he wanted a modern setting. And I'd had about seven years of architecture. The man who did all the sets and did that kind of stuff was down in Arizona, and they didn't know what to do, and I said, I can draw, get him a set. Ignorance, there's no authority in the world like it. But, but there's, there's, there's got to be something more than that technically. I mean, how did you know that... You know technically that the whole bag of movies can be learned in about a day and a half. Okay. I kid you not. Mr. Hitchcock, why do you always make mystery films? Life is a big mystery, isn't it? It always has been. I think people are intrigued by mystery to find out about things they don't know anything about. That's a mystery. So, Billy, we're back. Part two of, what do you call it? Famous filmmakers, famous Hollywood directors. Cut. Yeah. <laughs> and we talked about two um, of the more um epic type directors of all time and the next two are the more two of the more rotund directors of all time uh but very very classic in their own ways by that you mean orson wells and alfred hitchcock so let's get right to it and uh here's orson wells talking about being a director and and how difficult it was quote unquote when you were out there, I, I've always wanted to know the answer to this. The, the, you always hear that when you were 26 years old and you made Citizen Kane, uh, and they said, you can't do th these things, you can't have the background in focus or whatever it was, or you can't shoot a scene that way, Mr. Wells, or young Mr. Wells, or Orson, or whatever they called you then. And you knew that you could, and how did you know this? Uh, because I didn't know any better, and it's very much in the line with what Jack was saying earlier in the show. It comes from, from just, uh, you know, sheer dumbness <laughs> you're sure it's got to be your good and your great it's ignorance there's no authority in the world like it but but there's, there's, there's got to be something more than that technically i mean how did you know that you know technically that the whole bag of movies can be learned in about a day and a half okay. i kid you not now how, how does it work how do you do it you get a guy who knows and how then to... ask him and that's the end of it it isn't yeah. much harder than <laughs> taking a, a, a home movies. It's just about three points harder. Mm -hmm. And all these guys who do it try to make a big mystery of it because that's the, their living. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now, 
What do you think every director before, during, and after Orson Welles' interview is thinking about their their occupation? They're coming home. They're whoa, it's so hard. Well, that's Orson Welles, top to bottom. Uh, <clears throat> that's the way he was. He he was. Um, I I don't want to say arrogant, but he's describing himself pretty well. He was just like, why not? I can. Why can't I do this? I I will do this. And it started with Orson Welles when he did the broadcast on T on uh, the radio of the War of the Worlds, where he had half of America believing that the Earth was being invaded by Martians. He presented it at, at, on a Halloween night. I think it was a Halloween night, like it was a news butting into a, a radio show as a newscast. And he had all these, you know, actors and making it re very realistic. <clears throat> That's what got everybody's attention. That's why he got the, the uh, right to make Citizen Kane in the first place. He, and he, Citizen Kane, when it was reviewed by Leonard Malton, who was an esteemed movie expert, uh, said right that Citizen Kane uh, broke all the rules and invented some new ones. Say, repeat that again. I want to get a clean cut on that one. Leonard Malton, the esteemed movie expert and uh, critic, said about Citizen Kane that uh, it broke all the rules and made some new ones. And it's so clear when you watch that movie, you see stuff that you see every day now, but you never had seen until then. Well, he he talks about in this clip that I'll run a, a, again in a moment, how he even stepped foot on the stage of Citizen Cage at the age of 26. He tells a story where he watched John Ford's stagecoach over and over again over 40 yep. consecutive times over a month or so and he had different people come in and watch it with him he said how did he do that how do you do that what's this and he never took anything for granted as a director that you did a lot of things as a director um and so uh you you're in uh, a big fan of greg tolan tell me why you are uh, Toland was a cameraman, uh, unfortunately died very young from uh, Peroni, uh, some kind of heart disease. I think he was only in his 40s. But he was camera on Grapes of Wrath for John Ford. He was camera on Citizen Kane, uh, many others. Uh, <clears throat> uh, the best years of our lives, he was camera. His, his way of presenting a scene visually was, was just inspiring if you have if you have an eye for a camera which i always did i guess i've always loved the camera work and when i when i saw the way he did it he he was famous for deep focus which means you're in focus and so is everything behind you way back and there's a scene in um in the best years of our lives where frederick march is in the foreground and dana andrews is in the back on the, on the telephone and they're both equally in focus and they're both equally important to the scene and they're not with each other at the time. So, and Orson Welles, you know, when he when uh, when he spoke to uh, Greg Tolan, Greg Tolan, he said, "Why do you want to do this?" And Tolan said, "Because you've never done this before." Hold on, so, that thought. Hold on, that thought. Let's hear it. It because I had in my first picture in Kane the greatest cameraman who ever lived was Greg Toland, and he came to my office and said, "I want to work in your picture. My name is Toland." I said, why do you, Mr. Toland? He said, because you've never made a picture. <laughs> and you don't know what cannot be done. <laughs> and yeah. so I said, but I really don't. Can you tell me? He says, there's nothing to it. And he gave me the day and a half lessons. <laughs> and he was right. Showed you how the camera works. That's right. There's nothing to do. <laughs> and uh, so we had the day and a half, and there it was. But the only thing was, I'd been directing in the theater for this years. And I, nowadays, they have lighting people. We did then. And I had some some of the greatest lighting people, in fact, not there, but many of the shows I lit myself and I was supervised it. And I thought a director did that in a movie. So for the first 10 days, I was moving the lights around, you see. And uh, Toland was behind me, fixing it up and changing the readings and saying, shut up, let him go on. I want to see what he's up to, which was very chic of him, I think. And then somebody somebody told me and then I went and got on my knees and apologized. And everything. <laughs> He talks about ignorance. It's also naivety. He thought he had to do all these jobs because probably yeah. when he was younger. There were less and less people on the set, but uh, to have be able to work with these, you know, these geniuses. Bro, they refer to yeah. Citizen Kane as the Mona Lisa of, of of films. Oftentimes called the best movie of all time. And to Orson's credit, 
Um, <clears throat> some people don't think that he deserves credit for screenwriting and stuff like that because Herman Mankiewicz basically wrote the screenplay. And that's great, and the screenplay is great, but the, that movie is so good because it, visually it's good and because Orson Welles was such a good actor and it, almost overacting with his troupe of Mercury actors. It was their first movie, Joseph Cotton's first movie, Agnes Moore has first movie, uh, Ray Collins' first movie. These, these people all want to become big stars. And at the end of this whole thing, Orson Welles shared the director's credit with Craig Toland. N never seen that before anywhere, where the cinematographer is on the same page as the director at the end of a, a classic movie like Citizen Kane. It was the whole ball of wax. That's the biggest gesture by any of these four filmmakers. You're going to see as we switch to uh, Hitchcock, because we should switch to Hitchcock, how that might never have happened with Hitchcock. He he had his own preferences and so forth. And um, but just the way Orson Welles tells the story, you know. Yeah. Uh, and and Orson Welles, unlike these other directors, acted in many of his own movies. So you know, Orson jumped in with both feet, and and you gotta you gotta be uh, respectful of that. Fear he was fearless. All right, we'll go to the next clip of uh, Alfred Hitchcock. Oh boy, share that. I should have just gone over to it, sorry. Okay, we have about, about 10 solid minutes here for Hitchcock. So Billy, let's move over to one of our favorites. If certainly on the top uh, of my favorite directors, Alfred Hitchcock, and it's because he tells a story, not because of his personal life, but you 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 have told uh, uh, earlier about the commonalities, and and we're talking about Orson Welles, and Orson Welles and Alfred Hitchcock shared one fear. They both feared the police. As as Orson Welles right. said, if the police came over, he had to have done it. Yeah, he must have done it, yeah. He must have done it. Or as Hitchcock says, you know, he didn't drive a car because he was afraid of getting a parking ticket, a $2 parking ticket, and that could amount to murder, the way he tells the story. Yeah, yeah. And he uses the $2 analogy or, or story, pay the $2 and get to out take of it. Get, get him right to the noose. He, he uses that in in Jesse Royce Landis, the mother of um, Roger Thorn Thornhill, in North by Northwest. They're in that lavish uh, mansion out in Long Island, and the detectives are there, and 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 uh, the scene doesn't play out the way uh, Roger Thornhill or Thornhill or Cary Grant had said it. And the mother was skeptical. She says, Roger, pay the $2. Yeah, pay the $2. Get away from the, and this is a Hitchcock film, get away from the police. So let's see what he has to say. Mr. Hitchcock, why do you always make mystery films? Well, life is a big mystery, isn't it? It always has been. I think people are intrigued by mystery to find out about things they don't know anything about. That's a mystery. But surely not as sensational as you make it seem. Uh, life is more sensational. Directed this I shot. would say that, uh, uh, how does one describe drama? Drama is life with the dull bits cut out. Do you regard Nothing this more. guy was this guy was the master both on and off uh, behind the camera and otherwise <clears throat> and as he said when he was making a film actually shooting the film was the uh anticlimactic part of the whole job yeah, he <clears throat> but he's the he's the best, in my opinion it never never no one touches this guy for ability for presenting a story for suspense for sure he, he had a 50 year a film career, 53 films, as you've said before in other podcast episodes, he was a walking storyboard. So today you can buy software on your computer to storyboard your story, to figure out the things and the pieces and so forth. He loved figuring that out. What did he say? Uh, 
gosh, there were 78 shots in the um, scene. Psycho, yeah. We'll talk 78 pieces of film in 35 seconds or something like that. Yeah, and that took days boom, to boom, film. Boom, 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 boom. Yeah. yeah, he said that the, the property guys had um, come up with this elaborate human-looking pink torso filled with blood, so wherever you stabbed it, blood would come out, but they never ended up using it. He didn't need it. And what color was that filmed in that movie? Black and white. Yeah, so you're never going to see the red blood. But you knew it was red blood going down that drain. You knew that she got yeah. hit. And you knew there was more stabbing to come. And it led to what, <clears throat> in my lifetime, is one of the most memorable shots I've ever seen, where it starts on her eye and then zooms all the way out into the room, twisting and turning all the way out into the room and ends up on the $40,000, the MacGuffin which uh, nobody cares about, but <clears throat> he knew, he, he envisioned that scene. Who would envision a scene like that? Start right on her eyeball and end up in the motel room. Like, wow. Well, here's his motivation. Let's pull this up. Uh, the mystery, the form of mystery uh, in a film as a kind of escape for yourself in any way, an escape possibly from your own fears. Well, it might have started that way. I suppose it must have all started when I was in my mother's arms at the age of six months. And she said to me, boo, and scared the something out of me, you know. Can you remember any specific instance when you were frightened as a child? Well, I have a vague recollection of being scared by a policeman. I think that uh, when I was probably about four or five years of age, being sent with a note to the local police station and being shut in a cell as a punishment for some mishap or um, I don't, I think, uh, I don't even know what, what it was for. I was probably unjustly incarcerated at the time, but you <laughs> as a, as a six year old. He tells that story in so many places, whether it was four or five or six, but the rec recollection is the fright that he got from the police officer. And, and never got over. And he says, a psychologist will tell you, once you figure out what it is, you're over. He said, nah, that didn't work for me. He didn't get over it. And at the American Film Institute, where they bestowed a lifetime achievement on him, and they did it very cleverly. Every living actor, actress that was in his movies was at that place. And then people who weren't like, I think I saw Barbara Streisand there. I think I saw some popular, um, pop, popular cultural people there that weren't in any of his films, but everybody, they must've been running over to go to that. And he was there and he was talking about that story. And that was near the end of his life because they really had to prop him up to get him there. And Alma, his wife was there too. She had just had a stroke. She was crying when he attributed his, lifelong success to four people and each one of those people turns out to be his wife Alma yeah yeah but yeah it certainly had a life no. but you mentioned psycho so let's go to psycho here um let's bring this up so you mentioned psycho well psycho is the movie that put him in the public eye it was no longer just you know film goers and you know film aficionados and people who appreciate film psycho was like jaws basically it brought in everybody they all want to see this this horror movie this very scary movie <clears throat> it put him it put his name in the mouths of people who had never heard of him before yeah he called it a shocker but suspense and shock were in there and dread those three things and he preferred that that line of work um, over anything else. Um, let's see what he has to say about this one. New film is called Psycho. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me something about it? Well, Psycho is my first attempt at a shocker. In other words, it has in its content certain episodes which do shock. In some sense, it could be called a horror film, but the horror only comes to you after you've seen it, when you get home in the dark. When you get home in the dark and you're putting the pieces together and you don't sleep that night. 
Because this is where he tells the story about the woman who wouldn't take a tub after seeing Diabolique, an old movie where there was a, you know, a gory scene in a bathtub. And then she sees Psycho. And so she won't she won't take a bath and now she won't take a shower. She I think all, I think she was I think someone wrote him saying my my daughter won't you know she's become very unpleasant to be around <laughs> and she won't take a shower she won't take a tub and he wrote back uh, send her to the dry cleaner. All right, restate <laughs> that story, summarize because we use it at the very beginning. I use it as the opening clip in this episode. Okay, I'll use all it right. in both episodes. But so yeah, um, Billy, you were talking about. Uh, uh, someone who wrote a letter into Hitchcock about Diabolique. Right. And the woman, and, and she, <clears throat> when, when his daughter had seen that, she wouldn't take a bath anymore, or as he says, take a tub. Yeah. <clears throat> and after seeing Psycho, you know, that ruled out showers. So, <laughs> you know, what's, what's, his, what's, what's a person to do? <laughs> she, she, she was, as he said, unpleasant to be around. Well, let's let's hear the rest of this here. This is just great. And again, he's my favorite because the way he tells stories, and that is the same way he tells stories in movies. Can you be more specific? And the range. Sorry, I'm sorry. And the the range of stories he told is is you know unbelievable. Yeah, he just liked to find the murder and walk backwards from that. You know, in in uh, Strangers on a Train, about midway through, there's a murder and. Uh, I think he said at one point, I, you know, I'm always working on a film. Yeah. You know, that, when, uh, what was it in the uh, movie um, where it's all in the apartment? Uh, rope. We've talked rope. about rope. Rope is all done basically inside that apartment, kind of like his concept with rear window. Not all in and the apartment. And dial M for murder. And dial M for murder. But 90% of those, the, the scene is there. And uh, I don't think I think the opening scene of Rope is outside the apartment, like from on the balcony. Just walking. And the rest, yeah. And the rest is in there. And I think Dial M for Murder, there might be an occasional shot of the exterior, like Ray Milan standing outside the apartment building. But again, the rest of it takes place in there. There's a shot of him and Robert Cummings at the uh, phone where he actually dialed the M for murder. But again, mostly takes place in that parlor, as many as many great movies do. The interviewer here goes and he doesn't it's this movie isn't out yet. So he asks about to describe a little bit further about Psycho. About a particular kind. Of oh, thing. well, the, the rather broad idea is a, a young man played by Anthony Perkins, who runs a small motel, about a 12 unit, a rather cheesy affair, really. And in an old house behind the motel, uh, is his mother, and she, I'm afraid, is homicidal. He should put her away, but he loves her too much. So you can imagine what happens to the guests at the motel. <laughs> well, we know it happens to the guests at the motel. And, and uh, the people investigating the guests at the motel. Well, and the way he describes that, you think there's two characters here when there's a split personality character, but he doesn't lead into that. But no. in his mind, there were two characters, the way he thought about it and directed it. There was the mother and there was uh, the son. And even at the end where the psychiatrist, I think his name is uh, Simon Oakland, might be the guy who played him, talking about the two characters. Exactly. As if they're two different people. But Norman, but Norman's mother, you know. <clears throat> yeah. And, and again, we should mention the MacGuffin. That was Hitchcock's term for um in spy movies or in, in this case in psycho <clears throat> the macguffin is the thing that everybody in the movie is after but the audience doesn't really care what it is it could be microfilm it could be jewels it, it doesn't matter what it was to the audience and he calls that the macguffin and he <clears throat> i don't know if you have the the uh, clip where he defines I I, the macguffin no i don't have that one but i have i, I i'm we're going to run out of time here so i better wrap this up so, okay. I think so, right? Yeah. I think we can wrap this. So, Billy, we're talking about two classic filmmakers in Orson Welles and, and, and Alfred Hitchcock. Alfred Hitchcock did twice as many films as Welles, but they both told the story so well. And 
it was the director that was the most important thing. Matter of fact, Hitchcock referred to actors as uh, you need to treat them like cattle. They were just part of the whole thing, like the lighting director and the property man and so forth. He had a, a, a real feeling about this, but he was so technically correct in that he would tie the birds to Tippy Hedren's arms and film. Right. He said the hardest part was training the birds. Now, it's the first time I ever heard that those birds were trained in psycho. And uh, sorry, the first time I ever heard those birds were trained in the birds. But that's the detail that he went at. Final yep. thoughts. Well, psycho led him to the birds, but all the movies he made up till then, Foreign Correspondent, Lady Vanishes, Dial in for Murder, were very different. But that shows you how versatile Alfred Hitchcock was and what a mind he had. And as he and as he always said, you know, once it's all planned out with the writers and everything like that, shooting the film was so anticlimactic to him because he he already saw it. You were great about telling me to watch certain movies, but let's take let's instruct our audience two or three that you would recommend they go and invest some time with, and 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 spend the hour and a half on the two or three that you would definitely the ones that they may not know about. Which ones would you recommend? Well, if you're a movie buff, you've already seen Citizen Kane. That's a hard one, and it's less no, entertaining. I'm talking about Hitchcock. Let's talk about what would you recommend to the average viewer to see of all the 53 films at Hitchcock? If you said, go see these two or three, you won't Foreign remember. Correspondent, Foreign Correspondent, North by Northwest, Rope. I think The Lady Vanishes is also excellent. Notorious. Notorious. Notorious, is, notorious all is the best one. It's all black and white. Claude Rains. The acting in that is unbelievable. And the 39 Steps, another old one, black and white. With it's, the same kind of theme where an innocent guy gets tossed into a situation that, you know, gets worse and worse and he's got to find his way out. This is fabulous, Billy. There's no shortage of stories for John Ford, Howard Hawks, Orson Welles, or Alfred Hitchcock. We hope you've enjoyed this. Give us some comments. And uh, if you have other directors that you want us to talk about, I love Frank Capra, we'll do it, but we need some feedback. Yeah, and, and someday we'll get to Guy Ritchie, one of the modern day great directors. Uh, and I think he's right up there with the best that, that ever walked uh, Hollywood. All right, you're the director. What do we do at the end of a cut? Cut, that's a wrap. We'll do it again tomorrow. <laughs> John Ford would say, ah, we ran out of time. <laughs> All right, see you later. Thanks, ma'am. Why are you laughing? Oh, oh, well, at least we have the laugh to add at the end. <laughs> right. We're, we've gone from 12 handicaps at this to 19 handicaps in just a week. <laughs> that, that's what happened. Somebody changed my grip, and the next thing you know, I can't do the podcast anymore. I felt like I was in the first row of the uh, first pew at church right during the sermon. <laughs> and your brother was poking my you. Brother, my brother was making me laugh. Thanks for joining Billy us Casper, today. Billy Horner. We really appreciate your Double feedback. Indemnity. And please Marky. subscribe to Two the show. Ladder. Hit them hard. Job. And hit them off. That's 36 holes. It was about 1916. I was at college going taking a course in mechanical engineering back at Cornell University in New York. And this was, I took a job at the studio to earn, earn money during summer vacation. And it just happened that Doug Fairbanks was making a picture in the East and he wanted a modern setting and i'd had about seven years of architecture the man who did all the sets and did that kind of stuff was down in arizona and they didn't know what to do and i said i can draw get him a set so i made the set and doug came back and he looked at it and he said this is just what i wanted who, who the hell did this and they introduced me to him and he looked at me and he said, you look like you might be a pretty good athlete. And I said, I am. What do you do? And I said, well, I'm a four handicap at golf. And I was 
junior champion playing tennis. And, oh, hell, he said, come on out and play with me this next weekend. We became good friends. And he was going through a, the courtship stage with Mary Pickford. And he said to Mary, why don't you put Howard in as your real property man? She said, okay. And I did a couple of things that she liked, so she made me her assistant director. And one day the director got drunk and she said, I guess we can't work anymore. I said, why, why don't we make some scenes? And she said, can you do it? And I said, sure. And we made some scenes and she was very pleased with them. And that was my start as a director. Mr. Hitchcock, why do you always make mystery films? Well, life is a big mystery, isn't it? It always has been. I think people are intrigued by mystery to find out about things they don't know anything about. That's a mystery. But surely not as sensational as you make it seem. Uh, life is more sensational. I would say that uh, uh, how does one describe drama? Drama is life with the dull bits cut out. Do you regard the mystery, the form of mystery, uh, in a film as a kind of escape for yourself in any way? An escape possibly from your own fears? Well, it might have started that way. I suppose it must have all started when I was in my mother's arms at the age of six months. And she said to me, boo! scared the something out of me, you know. Can you remember any specific instance when you were frightened as a child? Well, I have a vague recollection of being scared by a policeman. I think that uh, when I was probably about four or five years of age, being sent with a note to the local police station and being shut in a cell as a punishment for some mishap or... Um, I don't, I think, uh, I don't even know what, what it was for. I was probably unjustly incarcerated at the time. But you see, the psychiatrists will always tell you, if you have a fear root, uh, that is rooted in you and comes from something in your childhood, the moment you can go back to it and release it, all is well. It doesn't apply to me. I'm still scared of policemen. Would you say you were a very, an e a very timid man? Utterly timid. I'm scared of everything. Is there one rule above all others which is indispensable to a director who wants to frighten an audience? I think he should understand the psychology of audiences. He should also know that audiences love to enjoy the very thing that they have built in, and that's fear uh, that all started when the mother said boo. But for some inexplicable reason, they like to, how shall I say, put their toe in the cold water of fear to see what it's like. That's why they go for rides on switchbacks and scream and scream and, and then get off giggling. Little, little girls go on swings. They go higher and higher. And suddenly when they get too high, they get scared and come down again. They're all trying it out. Your new film is called Psycho. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me something about it? Well, Psycho is my first attempt at a shocker. In other words, it has in its content certain episodes which do shock. In some sense, it could be called a horror film, but the horror only comes to you after you've seen it, when you get home in the dark. But can you be more specific? Is it about a particular kind of... Oh, well, the, the rather broad idea is a, a young man played by Anthony Perkins who runs a small motel, about a 12 unit, a rather cheesy affair really, and in an old house behind the motel uh, is his mother, and she, I'm afraid, is homicidal. He should put her away, but he loves her too much. So you can imagine what happens to the guests at the motel. You once told me that actors were cattle to be shoved about. I wonder if you'd care to enlarge on that. 
You mean you want to make them larger cattle than they are? No, no. Well, uh, I don't, that's really a joke. But um, they're children, you know, and uh, uh, invariably the problem one always has with actors is uh, coping with their ego. But they have to have the ego and they have to be uh, ultra-sensitive, otherwise they wouldn't be able to do what, the, what the, uh, is asked of them. You invariably appear in your own films, Mr. Hitchcock. Have you ever been tempted to become an actor yourself? Nothing so low as that. I've always wanted to know the answer to this. The, the, you always hear that when you were 26 years old and you made Citizen Kane, uh, and they said, you can't do th these things, you can't have the background in focus or whatever it was, or you can't shoot a scene that way, Mr. Wells, or young Mr. Wells, or Orson, or whatever they called you then. And you knew that you could, and how did you know this? Uh, because I didn't know any better, and it's very much in the line with what Jack was saying earlier in the show. It comes from, from just, uh, you know, sheer dumbness. You're sure it's got to be your good and your great. It's ignorance. There's no authority in the world like it. But, but there's, there's, there's got to be something more than that technically. I mean, how did you know that... You know technically that the whole bag of movies can be learned in about a day and a half. Okay. I kid you not. Now, how, how does it work? How do you do it? You get a guy who knows and how to... And then ask him, and that's the end of it. It isn't yeah. much harder than taking a, a, a home movies. It's just about three points harder. Mm -hmm. And all these guys who do it try to make a big mystery of it because that's the, their living. Mm -hmm. And I have the right to say it because I had in my first picture in Kane the greatest cameraman who ever lived, who was Greg Toland. Mm -hmm. And he came to my office and said, I want to work in your picture. My name is Toland. And I said, why do you, Mr. Toland? He said, because you've never made a picture. <laughs> and you don't know what cannot be done. Gee. And yeah. so I said, but I really don't. Can you tell me? He says, there's nothing to it. And he gave me the day and a half lessons. And he was right. Showed you how the camera worked. That's right. There's nothing to do. Yeah. And uh, so we had the day and a half, and there it was. But the only thing was, I'd been directing in the theater for years, and I, nowadays they have lighting people. We did then, and I had some, some of the greatest lighting people, in fact, in the theater. But many of the shows I lit myself, and I was supervised it. And I thought a director did that in a movie. So for the first 10 days, I was moving the lights around, you see. And uh, uh -huh. Toland was behind me, fixing it up and changing the readings and saying, shut up, let him go on. I want to see what he's up to, which was very chic of him, I think. And then somebody, somebody told me, and then I went and got on my knees and apologized and everything. I thought that's what the directors did. Uh -huh. Because if you see a picture by Ford, for example, you were speaking of Jack Ford earlier. He's had, what, uh, must be in a hundred cameramen in his long career. And almost every Ford picture you can tell from the look of it. That it's a... A Ford picture, yeah. just from the physical look yeah. of it. His, his signature is on it, you know. Now, when every, every list of great films, of course, many of them lead with Citizen Kane and, and say it's the, it's the finest film made. Um, do you agree? No, certainly not. That's My next one is, though, that's the... <laughs> the Magnificent Ambassador. No, the next, no not, the, not the one after that, the one I'm preparing at this moment. Oh, oh the next one. That's, next one. that's going to make history. Could you give us the title of that? I haven't decided what it is yet. Oh. <laughs> Thank you. Now, could I just check one other thing with you? Is it true that the, the Hearsts tried to actually have the film destroyed before it was... They tried spread? to have it destroyed. They even tried to frame me. One... Why, in one town, I was doing a, some kind of date, I don't know what, bond tour or lecture, some kind of a, a gig, and I was a, a, in a nightclub afterwards, mm -hmm. waiting to go back to my hotel, have a little supper, and waiter came up and says, a police officer wants to see you. Well, I tried to hide, because if that ever happens, I'm sure I'm guilty. I don't know how, how you are about it, but, you know. Absolutely. And then I see a cop, I know I did it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> There was no way out of it. I had to go see him, and he took me aside, and he said, uh, Orston, I don't know why they always call me Orston. He says, um, don't go back to your hotel room. Yeah. I said, why? He says, they've got a minor staked out there and a photographer. Lady? Uh, in, uh, luckily, a lady, I think. I, I prefer to tell it that way. Oh, no, no, I meant, I meant ER as opposed to OR. I'm sorry. sorry. And uh, they were going to frame me. I would have been in jail yeah. if the, you know, with the cops waiting to jump in and arrest me. That was not Mr. Hurst itself. It was somebody in that town who thought he'd get in good with a 
gig and I was uh, in a nightclub after. <laughs> I see. Now, could I just check one other thing with you? Is it true that the, the Hearsts tried to actually have the film destroyed before it was... They tried filmed? to have it destroyed. They even tried to frame me. One, one, in one town, I was doing a, some kind of date. I don't know what, bond tour, lecture, some kind of a, a gig. And I was a, a, in a nightclub afterwards, mm -hmm. waiting to go back to my hotel, have a little supper. And waiter came up and says, There's a police officer wants to see you. Well, I tried to hide because if that ever happens... I'm sure I'm guilty. I don't know how, how you are about it, but, you know. Absolutely. And then I see a cop, I know I did it. But <laughs> there was no way out of it. I had to go see him, and he took me aside, and he said, uh, Orston, I don't know why they always call me Orston. He says, um, don't go back to your hotel room. Yeah. I said, why? He says, they've got a minor staked out there and a photographer. A lady? Uh, in, uh, luckily, a lady, I think. I, I prefer to tell it that way. Oh, no, no, I meant, I meant ER as opposed to OR. I'm sorry. sorry. And uh, they were going to frame me. I would have been in jail yeah. if the, you know, were the cops waiting to jump in and arrest me. That was not Mr. Hurst itself. It was somebody in that town who thought he'd get in good with the boss by doing a favor. By do, doing a favor. Yeah. I don't think Hurst would have stooped to that. Would you change? Although I did have a conversation with him about about the picture, yeah. which was in an elevator in San Francisco the night it opened. I, we found ourselves going up together. And he'd known my father. I'd never met him, you know. And I introduced myself. Things you'll do when you're young, you know. <laughs> and I said, uh, would you like to come to the opening tonight? And he didn't answer. And I said, well, Mr. Kane would have come. And that's the difference between the two people, because the character of Charles Foster Kane had enough class mm -hmm. to have gone to the opening. But he just, yeah. uh, he was very uptight, that was the end of that. It wasn't really about him, it was made up of a lot of people, that's what, the truth. What's the last time you saw it? I, I saw it, the, the, that, that opening in San Francisco, and I snuck out right after it started. I've never seen a picture of mine after I finished it. You haven't seen Citizen Kane in all these years? No picture I've ever made, except as an actor, but never seen a picture I've directed. Only once? Yeah, well, why? a thousand times in the cutting room. Yeah, but wh why wouldn't you want to see it now? And because see it? I like to sit here and think how good it must have been, you know. <laughs> is, there ever, is there any chance that you would change any of it or do any of it again? Of course, everything. You'd want to change everything, I think. You know, don't you want to change things after you've done them and a movie can't be changed? No, that was the yeah. whole thing. I just... And, and I like to think, oh, yes, and all those great pictures, and I know if I saw them that all confidence would go. Certainly as, uh, as Churchill or Roosevelt or George Marshall, and I suppose Marshall is the greatest man I ever met. Really? Yes, I would think so. What, what would you admire what, about him above everybody else? human being. Mm -hmm. I think he's the, he's the greatest human being who was also a great man. Of course, I was immensely impressed with Churchill. And, and, uh, uh, and, but, but he was quite another thing, you know. He, was, uh, he had great humor and great irony. He went to see me when I played Othello on the stage in London. Mm -hmm. And I heard a low murmuring in the front row. I thought he was talking to himself. And then he came backstage afterwards and sat down in the dressing room and said, Most potent, grave, and reverend seniors, my most approved good masters, and began the whole of Othello's part, which he had memorized, and uh, <laughs> including the cuts which I had made, <laughs> which he read with a good deal of extra emphasis. Mm -hmm. And then uh, <laughs> a few... Years afterwards, I happened to be in Venice trying to get some money for a movie during the festival, and poor Churchill had been, right after the war, as you know, crest of the greatest victory that any single man had ever presided over in modern history was voted out of office. Quite properly, probably, but it was a tragic blow for him, and there he was in the hotel uh, at the Lido with uh, Clemmy, his wife, alone. And he'd go swimming out on the beach, and one day at lunch, I came in with a Russian businessman I was trying to hustle for some money for this picture. 
<laughs> and as we passed Mr. Churchill's table, Mr. Churchill saw me and made that little gesture, and the Russian went out of his mind. This is a white Russian, not a red Russian. This is a, this is a you know, a hustling semi-Armenian Russian. <laughs> and uh, when he saw that Mr. Churchill not only knew me, but gave a rather special acknowledgement, it was clear to me that I had the money for my picture. <laughs> so the next morning I was out swimming in the beach and I, found, and I found myself paddling in the water right next to Mr. Churchill. And I hadn't gone up to speak to him, but there we were in the water and uh, I had known him on and off during the war in a humble capacity and I said, uh, uh, Mr. and he had come backstage to see me and I said, Mr. Churchill, I think you ought to know what you did for me. And I told him about how this acknowledgement had meant so much to me with my financier. Mm -hmm. And that day at lunch, I came in with the financier again, and Mr. Churchill rose from his chair and bowed. Working for John Ford uh, on The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance and, and then later Donovan's Reef, uh, you know, so just so much has been written about the man, and uh, I think some of, some of it seems to paint him as this simple kind of Irishman, but in reality, he was really a very complex uh, person. He was an intellect, um, tough Irish intellect. I don't think there can be anything worse than that. Uh, in other words, he has all the demons in him, the Irish demons, and he's also intelligent, and. Uh, when the script is written, etc., if there was ever a difficult scene, he'd always shoot it at the end of the day. <clears throat> so uh, he'd break for tea about four. And they'd say, All right, now we're going to do this scene. And so, you know, walk through it, put the marks down, <clears throat> and go for the first take. Now we're all set and all juiced and ready to go, right? And he'd look at his watch and say, All right, that's the wrap, first shot in the morning. Now you leave the set like this, you're wired. And all night long you're saying, I, geez, I was ready to go. I mean, why did I have to live with this like this? And you say, was I? Then you start to criticize yourself in the scene. You say, oh my God, I would have done that. Oh, what's wrong? Mm. So now you come to work the next morning knowing how you're going to change what you're doing. And you see that the set has all changed. All the marks are up, the camera's gone, everything. You say, all right, now let's uh, run that scene again. Totally different and right. In other words, he'd let you sweat it for a night, and he'd sweat it for a night. And you do it in the morning. I mean, that's how how bright he was about things like that. Uh, Bill Clothier told me in an interview that he had tried to talk Ford into shooting Liberty Valance in color. That he felt the black and white was was wrong, it was dated, or whatever. But then when he was actually seeing the dailies and seeing the the mood of the piece, that there was no other way but to shoot it in black and white. Well, black and white saves you a lot of problems. Uh, it takes you back into the into the mystical past. I mean, for instance, there's so many films you see today that'd be better in black and white, except the distributors won't handle them. They say our audiences want color. So if you have a night scene in a dark alley in color, it really doesn't amount to much. If you did in black and white like in the old days, what they could do with shadows, it'd be much more dramatic. I mean, look at the look at the Joan Crawford films. The Curtis, the way he yeah, used the, the gee, these bars of light and the moods and the beauty. I mean, it was for some reason. I don't know how to put this. Even for some reason, it allowed you to experience it in its purity, whereas in color, it allows you to tear it apart. Because if there's a red rose in the corner, it's going to be just as red, because they're going to light it. Having nothing to do with the scene, and your eye goes, I think it blows up. <clears throat> Working with John Wayne, uh, I did the Comancheros and uh, Liberty Valance, Diamond's Reef. I would rather be a filmmaker than anything else that I know. Why are comedy and western your favorite movie genre? Well, because uh, 
In a Western, you get outside, out on the desert, out in the uh, outdoors, and it's very pleasant to work. And also, I enjoy working with John Wayne, and John Wayne has been in all the Westerns that I've made. And we like each other, and it's very easy to work with him. He just says, what do I do? I tell him, and he never says one word. He just does it. Well, John Wayne is the greatest Western star that we have. And Cary Grant is the best comedian. So that I, in making comedies, I've only used Cary Grant, and I make it easy for myself. And actresses? Actresses, I am not very fond of using established actresses. They like just the left side of their face photographed, and that's too much trouble. So I always put new actresses. If I can, I find a new actress and put them in the picture to work with the men who are so good, and they help her. And, and in that way, I found quite a number of stars, like Carol Lombard, Rita Hayworth, Angie Dickinson, Lauren Bacall, all of them were just made their first picture with me. Well, Marilyn Monroe was a very a personality. She was not a great actress at all. She was really a frightened little girl who never thought that she was good enough to uh, to do what she did. I think that the best of my generation are uh, Capra and uh, Stevens, Leo McCary, and a man that I have a great admiration for is Jack Ford. He's influenced very, me very much in the making of pictures. I steal from him, and he steals from me. And we're very good friends. I know a few French directors, like Truffaut and people like that, that I've admired and liked their work. I uh, know a couple of Italian directors that I thought did a good job. I haven't seen very many pictures from other countries because they uh, they don't have them over in America. I think cinema is entertainment, and I don't like the sick stories. I don't like them at all. Well, I like violence if the story calls for violence. I don't like violence as the picture, the wild bunch or something like that, where they just use buckets of blood and all over. I don't like that kind of violence. I like to kill them very quickly and then it's finished. I decided that people did not like the Vietnam War and there was no reason to make a picture about something that people didn't like. So anybody who wants to buy a good scenario can buy it from me now. I wouldn't say that I'm a religious man. I am not anti-religious, but I am, I am not uh, very, very religious. I'm not interested in making arguments. I have no place. Mr. Ford, I'm, I'll probably get the pronunciation wrong, but I believe your real name is Sean O'Feen, is it, or Fine? How, how Irish are you? Are you 100% Irish? Oh, century bad. O'Fenner. Sean O'Fenner. When did you come to America? I was born here. What sort of a childhood did you have? Were you interested in movies way back? 
Not really. I'm not interested in them now, actually. It's a way of making a living. No, uh... Oh, I don't know. Occasionally go to movies and, uh... I was not particular. I wasn't what you call an aficionado or anything like that. I suspect that a lot of your scripts are very improvised, and I believe that one of the arch exponents of this was Will Rogers. Can you tell me about him? Will you make a statement and ask a, ask a question? A lot of my scripts are improvised. Exactly what do you mean by that? That you start with basic material and then work around it. Well, I think any good director would do that. I'm in a script as a skeleton that you work on. If it's a good script, you do it, I mean, verbatim. But how often do you get a script that you can do verbatim? I mean, I remember once upon a time, I mean, the so-called producer and the writer was a very dear friend of mine. He says, this is the greatest script I've ever written. He says, Jack, I want you to promise me now that you'll do this word for word. As I solemnly swear, I will do it word for word. So I did this script, and did this picture. We only went five weeks over schedule. And it came out when the final first cut was 18 reels. How did you first strike up your lifelong association with John Wayne? Well, number one is not lifelong. Uh, I've known Duke about, Duke as we call him, about 30 years. He was my third assistant prop man. Then he became the second prop man. He finally worked himself up to prop man. And we started to do stagecoach and, uh, oh, everybody turned it down. I had to pedal it around. And finally, Walter Wayne said, you know, he says, well, you got a pick. He says, you know, he says, what, a Western He says, well, go ahead and do it. He says, who do you want to use for a lead? I says, I've got a kid here. He's uh, just out of college. I've used him in several bits, and he's very good. Big, tall, handsome guy. And I'd like to make a test of him, uh, test of him uh, show it to you. He said, well, if you say he's okay, oh, okay, and you, I'll make the test. So I made a test, and he says, yeah, he says, go ahead, great. So Walter went off to Europe, and we made the picture with Duke, and that sort of started him off. But uh, we've always been very friendly, and uh, I'm the godfather of all, of all of his children, and he has many, and his grandchildren, of which he has more, so, we're very close. I'm afraid you're going to hate this question, but I, I do want to ask you about courage. Would you say that courage was something that one acquired or something that one was born with? Well, how do you expect me to answer that? Because your work, your films, are full of courageous people. Your activities in the war are full of courage. And you've chronicled some of the most historically courageous incidents in history. You do seem to be interested in courage. I don't know. I've tried to figure that I am a... I am really a coward. I know I am. So that's why I did foolish things. And I was decorated eight or nine times. Trying to prove that I was not a coward. But after it's all over, I still knew that I still know that I was a coward. I've always found out the little quiet little man that nobody pays any attention to usually has more guts. Can you use guts in BBC? Hmm? Sure. Has more guts and courage than the big blowhard, the big noisy 
you know, the big outspoken fellow. It's a little man that does a trade.